Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, the fog of war. The number of Canadians that have reached out to Global Affairs Canada to be helped is around 200. As Ottawa moves to get Canadians out of the Middle East, the focus is on a Gaza hospital tonight where local authorities say hundreds of people have been killed by a blast. What impact will this have on the war coming up? We will speak to the Director of Conflict Resolution at the Middle East Institute. Also... We expect the Liberals to deliver on, uh, on the promise and uh, it's going to be a, a red line for us. As new Democrats push the Trudeau government to bring in a public pharmacare plan, we'll speak with a former Trudeau health minister who agrees with the NDP. And... We are fiscally responsible as we support people with things like the grocery rebate. Is the Prime Minister's affordability message failing to impress Canadians? We'll look at the latest polls and the bad news for the governing Liberals. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. We begin in Gaza where the local health authority is reporting hundreds dead tonight after a rocket blast hit a hospital where thousands of civilians had been sheltering. Gazan health authorities blame the attack on Israel, but Israeli defense forces deny responsibility, turning to social media and saying, quote, Following an analysis by the IDF's operational systems, a barrage of rockets was launched towards Israel, which passed in the vicinity of the hospital when it was hit. According to intelligence information from a number of sources we have, Islamic Jihad terrorist organization is responsible for the failed rocket launch that hit the hospital. Well, joining us now is Randa Slim. She is with the Middle East Institute, a senior fellow and the director of the Institute's Conflict Resolution and Track 2 Dialogues program. Uh, Dr. Slim, thank you for being with us this evening. Good to be with you. I want to begin here with the hospital blast. As you know, Israel is denying responsibility. Instead, they say their tracking points to a rocket fired by Palestinian militants, which was aimed at Israel, uh, but essentially fell short of its target. How likely is that? Well, look, in this fog of war, it behooves Israel, which is being accused of having fired this missile that hit uh, the hospital and killed hundreds, to basically provide evidence to any partial third party to look at the evidence and then decide whether the Israeli narrative now that it was a Islamic Jihad missile or rocket is the correct one or their narrative is, I mean, their narrative is correct one or whether you know, the other narrative, which is very much uh, widely accepted in the Arab region, that it was an Israeli hit. So even if it were to go to a third party, though, without a doubt, uh, whatever people's conclusions are right now will have an impact on what's happening on the ground. Does this have the immediate uh, risk of escalating the tensions? Yes. I mean, the tempo of escalation now has been picking up speed for the last, I would say, 12, 18 hours on a number of fronts. And I think this attack will have, will quicken the pace even more. Uh, there is now a very, um, I mean, a very angry public mood in almost every Arab country, in, in also in places like Turkey. And that I think is going to put pressure on, um, on the governments in these countries, on non-state actors like Hezbollah, 
to do something to you know respond to this kind of public anger. Now, as you say that, without a doubt, we have to, to, to point to the fact that the U.S. President Joe Biden is headed to Israel tomorrow. Uh, he is to, to stand alongside, essentially, uh, the, the Israeli Prime Minister to show solidarity. So I wonder, could his visit prove to be provocative? Look, the optics now are going to be very difficult for the president. So I don't know what he's going to say. If he's going to repeat the mantra of unconditional support for Israel and um, support for Israel's right to defend itself, but also decide how to defend itself. I think that's going to be problematic uh, going into his meetings with President Sisi of Egypt and King uh, Abdullah of Jordan. Uh, already that kind of unconditional support that the U.S. has been lending to Israel uh, since Hamas attack on October 7th has been, you know, is, is being viewed in the Arab region, in the wider Middle East, as partly responsible for Israeli behavior, basically giving carte blanche to Israel, not putting conditions on Israel. And, and people are asking the, you know, and I think the two officials, the Arab senior uh, official who will be meeting with, he's got, they are going to request of President Biden to, you know, put some condition on Israel that they have to live with the laws of war, as the president has said in his first address to the American people, that Israel is a democracy, there are laws of war, and Israel has to live with these laws of war. So far, we have not seen Israel living with these laws of war. I mean, not only we are talking about the attack today on the hospital, but there has been also an attack on UNRWA, you know, the UN, UN Refugee Agency. One of its schools was attacked. Six people were killed. These schools have become shelters for people fleeing, you know, the Israeli attacks in on their homes. So, uh, and Israel has the coordinate of every single UN agency, every single UN school in the district. And so Israel cannot deny or cannot say that, you know, they did not know that this was a school. I mean, they had the coordinate and yet it was hit by an Israeli missile and it was not denied by Israel. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I want to pick up on a point that you said, though, because you, you say that what is happening right now in Gaza may and could inspire non-state actors like Hezbollah to step up their actions. But what about state actions? How likely is this to spread beyond just Israel and Hamas in Gaza? I mean, look, uh, there's always, uh, to, uh, this time, I think the likelihood of it becoming a regional war, and uh, be it with Hezbollah involving the Syrian-Israeli border, the Golan Heights, involving maybe, you know, Iraqi militias, all these are members of what's called the resistance axis. Uh, I mean, it's, it's definitely higher than before. Uh, in the past, there have been many, many, I mean, there have been at least five since 2007 and Hamas takeover of Gaza. There have been at least five uh, confrontation, military war uh, confrontation between Hamas and Israel. And throughout this time, is Israeli objective was always to deter and punish Hezbo uh, Hamas, but never to eradicate Hamas. Because Hamas has proven over the years to be a useful tool for the Israeli governments, you know, and especially the government uh, led by Mr. Netanyahu to basically say, we don't have an acceptable, credible Palestinian partner. Look at those Palestinians. They are divided between the Palestinian authorities, between Hamas and the Palestinian authority is weak. Hamas controls Gaza. It's a terrorist entity. We don't have an acceptable negotiating partner on the Palestinian side. Hence, we are going to push the peace process aside. And the international community, especially the West, has been going along with this myth 
that we can push the Palestinian problem aside and we can have an occupation that is sustainable and that is relatively cost-free. Hamas is no longer a useful tool for the Israelis. That has reached an expiration date. Their objective now is to eradicate Hamas, to eviscerate Hamas. And that is going to be a red line for groups like Hezbollah, a red line for countries like Iran, a red line for you know other members of the resistance axis. And that's why the likelihood of this escalating into a regional war, especially if the ground invasion of is uh, uh, the Israeli ground invasion of Gaza is bloody and protracted, I think the likelihood of this expanding into a regional war is is high. Now, is it going to happen? Is it preventable? Yes, it's always preventable. But is it more likely than in previous times when Hamas and Israel confronted each other? Yes, it's more likely. Dr. Randislim, I appreciate the time. Thank you for that. Thank you very much. As we continue to track the conflict in Gaza tonight, we also want to update you with some of the latest numbers that we're getting from officials here at home. It begins with the confirmation of another Canadian who was killed in the Hamas attack on Israel 10 days ago. That brings the number of Canadians killed in that coordinated attack to six, with two Canadians still listed as missing. At this point, Canada has helped evacuate 1,300 Canadians out of Israel and 21 Canadians from the West Bank, with this message coming to us today from the Foreign Affairs Minister. My message to Canadians that are in Tel Aviv and Canadians that are in West Bank, if you want to leave, please contact Global Affairs Canada. If you're given a spot, please take it because we don't know how long this operation will be able to continue as the situation is very volatile. If you are in Lebanon, it is now time to leave while commercial flights are available. Well, to another matter now, as the NDP emerged united on the issue of pharmacare at their convention this weekend, saying any plan presented by the Liberals must be a plan for a fully public scheme. The supply and confidence agreement between the two parties states that a National Pharmacare Act must be passed by the end of this year, and if it's not public, the NDP says they are willing to walk away from the deal. Well, I think it was a crystal clear message to the government that we want public pharmacare, and we expect the Liberals to deliver on, uh, on the promise, and uh, it's going to be a, a red line for us. Because 8 million Canadians right now, as we're talking, don't have access to pharmaceutical coverage. Millions more have some, but it's deficient. Thousands of people die every year in a G7 country because they don't get access to medication. And yet we know there's a public policy recommended by Royal Commissions, Advisory Councils, Committees, going back to the 40s telling us there's a solution, and that's to fold pharmaceuticals into our single-payer system. Well, we're now joined by Dr. Jane Philpott, the Dean of Health Sciences and Director of the School of Medicine at Queen's University, also a former minister in the Trudeau government. Uh, Dr. Philpott, thank you for joining us again. My pleasure. Nice to be here. Now, as you know, New Democrats say that any pharmacare bill put forward by the government has to be one that creates a public single-payer system. You know, the politics aside, you also say this is the kind of scheme that Canada needs to pursue. Uh, why is that? Well, this is something that's been studied over many, many years. And of course, we can also look to international comparisons as to how good pharmacare programs happen. So there's a lot of evidence out there. 
But I would point specifically to the report that was commissioned by the current government uh, in its previous iteration uh, and delivered by Dr. Eric Hoskins in 2019 that looked at the different kinds of models of care. And there was no question in the end that the best model for Canada to save money and make sure people get the medication they need is what we call a universal single payer system. And so I'm happy to see that there's a, a lot of push in that direction. And that's very much what uh, many of us are hoping to see out of the government in the coming months. Okay, let me pick up on that point though, because conservatives, uh, we hear from them, they're concerned uh, about the dollars. Uh, Pierre Polyev saying that he would rather uh, look at reducing program spending in general before creating new programs. Uh, and Pharmacare would cost billions for the public purse. So what do you say to that kind of argument that type of concern? Well, I say this is exactly how you should be trying to save money for the public purse, because in the end, this will save money for Canadians. We already spend an enormous amount of money as Canadians and including Canadian governments, close to $40 billion a year gets spent on, on pharmaceutical medications. It's a it's very costly. The incremental new cost to add a basic package of medications uh, uh, for universal single payer would be as little as a couple of billion dollars extra is the news that we heard from the parliamentary budget officer. And in the end, that will save money. It'll save money for governments. It'll save money for for people uh, who have no drug plan. And it'll save a lot of money uh, for both employers uh, and, uh, and companies that are um, providing these plans right now. Now, would a public uh, system affect private programs? Because right now, as you know, there are many Canadians who are happy uh, to have the coverage that they currently already have. Well, they're happy to have it because it's certainly better than no coverage. But at the end of the day, either that person or their employer is paying for that. If you look at the, even the overview of the Hoskins report that came out, one of the things that shocked me when I reread it recently was that not only do we have about 100 public drug plans across the country, we have about 100,000 private drug plans across the country. And, and people know how much administrative cost it is just to even fill out the, the forms to get your money back for that. But the other effect of all of those drug plans is that there's no uh, bulk purchasing power. So what a universal single payer plan would allow us to do is to bring all of those together and say, hey, all Canadians need this particular medication. You need to give us the very best price possible. And the fact is that right now, Canadians are paying some of the highest drug prices in the world. So we'll all save money if we can get that unified bulk purchasing power together. Okay, uh, talk about potential negative effects though, because as you know, healthcare minus pharmacare right now, that's a public program. There are shortages and long waits. Uh, many people, millions of people still don't have primary care. Would those kinds of frustrations be created by a public pharmacare program uh, since people right now are, are, are looking at maybe private solutions to the public healthcare system? Well, there is no question that there are a lot of challenges in health systems right now. But in fact, by getting things right on pharmacare, it may actually be the first step to solving some of those other big problems like access to, to, uh, to primary care. 
in both cases, and this is often a phenomenon in healthcare, is that when you do the right thing and you spend money in the right places, you actually save money in the end. Instead, unfortunately, what we end up often doing, because we're not being proactive in our health, either as individuals or as a society, is that we end up spending a large amount of money for late stage care for hospital care rather than for preventive care. And so getting, making sure that people can have access to the medicines that they need, making sure that they have access to the primary care providers that they need, those are the smart ways to spend our money so that we can ultimately actually bring our costs down. And that has been documented in lots of countries in Europe in particular that pay a lot less than we do per person on healthcare, but get better outcomes and people live longer. Okay, so if it's not a public single-payer system that emerges from the Trudeau government, what's the alternative? What kind of program would cause you concern? Well, the other alternative that's most frequently discussed is is called a fill the gaps, you know, and, and it's uh, not dissimilar to the model that's being used now in Quebec, which means that most people that have uh, private coverage um, continue with their private coverage no matter how expensive it might happen to be and the public steps in and fills those gaps for the the people that don't have uh, money otherwise but it doesn't get at the real benefit of a public pharmacare plan which is that ability to be able to purchase in bulk to be able to get the lowest possible prices and to be able to save all of that administrative cost um, it's the you know, it's that, that the system that's used for healthcare writ large in countries like the US where we see just exorbitant costs that people are paying for healthcare because they've got multiple, multiple insurers, uh, private and public mixture of insurers. In Canada, we've been able to save money because as, as it relates to the cost of doctors and hospitals, we do that with a universal single payer. Now we need to have the universal single payer uh, it, when it comes to our pharmacare costs as well, and we'll save money. Dr. Jane Philpott, always appreciate the time. Thank you for that. Thanks for having me. Through the summer, we saw Conservatives push past the Trudeau Liberals in public opinion polls. And while observers were not too sure that trend would continue into the autumn, so far it has. And now, if an election were held today, the Tories would be in clear majority territory, even as the Prime Minister continues to argue the Liberals have the plan to tackle the affordability issue. After eight long, miserable years, this Prime Minister is not worth the cost. He massively increased the money supply by $600 billion, inflating housing costs by over 100%. That forced one C-SPAN shipyard worker I met last week to buy a normal house for over a million dollars. And now, interest rates have gone up because of inflationary deficits, something the Prime Minister promised would not happen. And he's forced to pay $7,500 a month on his mortgage while supporting his three kids. Will the Prime Minister reverse his inflationary spending so that this gentleman and his wife and three kids can afford to keep their home? Mr. Speaker, one thing is clear. The, uh, the cuts, the austerity that are proposed by the leader of the official opposition would not help that family, would not help Canadians from coast to coast be able to afford uh, a new home. That is exactly, or the homes they're living in even. That is why we're continuing to work right across the country to bring forward ambitious and community-specific solutions to the housing problems they're facing. We've signed housing accelerator fund agreements with London, with Vaughan, with Halifax, with Hamilton, uh, with the province of Quebec, 
with more to come, Mr. Speaker. The cuts he's proposing won't help Canadians. Our investments, done responsibly, will continue to help Canadians. That's right. Here, here. Well, joining us now is polls analyst Philippe Fournier, the man behind 338 Canada. Philippe, always good to see you. Thank you for taking the time. Bonjour, Michael. It's good to see you. You know, the numbers here, they are really astounding. Not only this double-digit lead for Conservatives, but when you crunch the numbers, we're looking at a resounding majority for the Tories if an election were held today. Can you talk to us about the numbers and what they look like right now? Well, Michael, as you know, I don't rely on a single poll. I take a collection of polls, and of course, polls come and go, and they add up. And since the convention, we have seen a growing conservative lead in every pollster in the country. Uh, it used to be between four and six points, and now it's regularly double-digit, as you mentioned. Uh, the latest polling that we had last week, Main Street Research and Abacus Data, both 13 and 14 point leads uh, for the conservative. So this is a massive lead and it's not just located in the prairies in Alberta where the, uh, the conservatives were already doing well. They're also doing well where they need to to win. And that's why the seat projection now is close to 200 seats for the Conservatives. Now, there is no election on the horizon, so let's not get carried away. But this is the, the, this, the state of the landscape right now. Well, it well, certainly uh, gives us a measure of what people are thinking and certainly a, a big change from what we saw even in the summer. So let's break that down a bit more, if you don't mind. Let's start in Atlantic Canada, of course, this Liberal stronghold for Trudeau since his first election as leader. So what's happening there right now for the, for the Liberal Party? The slow erosion of liberal support in Atlantic Canada has completely fallen now. So when we look at polling, we have to be careful. Usually, Atlantic Canada in polls, it's a small sample. It's around 100 cases. So it's, it yields a huge uncertainty. But when you see poll after poll after poll, that has, at best for the liberals, a tie at worst, a double-digit lead for the Conservatives, it means that they're losing their grip on what used to be a very good stronghold, where there are 32 seats and most of them are Liberal right now. So uh, the projection says now that the Conservatives would win the most seats in Atlantic Canada, which they haven't done since the Harper era, of course. Uh, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, they all lean blue. Uh, Newfoundland, which has always leaned red. Even Michael Ignatieff in 2011, in his disastrous election, still won the popular vote in, uh, in uh, Newfoundland. But now the latest poll that we have from Abacus Data show a nine-point lead for the Conservatives, and so they would win the most seats in that province too if an election were held this week. Okay, so so obviously slipping in Atlantic Canada. Let's now go to Ontario, because that's the other uh, region, other province, that has really been a liberal bedrock. What's happening there? Well, the thing is, in Ontario, you don't need to see the vote move that much for many seats to flip. So let's remember that the, 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 the Liberals had almost two to one advantage in seats in Ontario in the last election, yet they only won Ontario by four points, 39% to 35% for the Conservatives. But now all this vote efficiency that the Liberals used to enjoy, well, vote efficiency is a double-edged sword. When you start losing votes and losing in a popular support to your main rival, uh, it costs you many seats. So right now, uh, when you see the, the, the all the the, the the polling that we've seen in Ontario, from eight 
point lead to a 15 point lead for the conservatives it means that the conservatives are looking at maybe 70 to 80 seats in the province of ontario and just from there it makes it impossible for the liberals to win even a slim minority they need to win ontario if they have a chance to have a chance to 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 keep uh, the most seats and have a plurality in the house of commons and now they are losing in ontario as well okay so let's go now to some reasoning behind this because as you know the tories did have this big ad buy during the summer it's continuing into the autumn season. It features Pierre Polyev as a leader that Canadians must, uh, must get to know. Uh, is that what we're seeing in part by these numbers, the success of that ad campaign? It's a good question, Michael. Usually we have to be careful with the cause and effect in polling. Sometimes it's not as linear as we wish it to be. But as you said, since uh, Pierre Poilievre became leader, and especially in the last five or six months, months, the Conservatives have been on an almost constant campaign. And the, 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 the ad buys that we've seen this summer, where the, the Conservatives have tried to soften the image of Mr. Poiliev, with Madame Poiliev, of course, being featured in those in those campaigns, uh, seem to be bearing fruit right now. And so uh, I, I think, you know, the, the, the wear and tear of time, the wear and tear of power for the Liberals is uh, starting to really take a hold on them. Plus, the Conservatives have a new leader that seems to be very energetic and appealing to many Canadians. Okay, wear and tear, that's the phrase that you're using. Uh, can you talk about confidence? Have uh, even Liberals now lost confidence in Justin Trudeau? Is that what we're seeing here? Well, we, we were not there yet, although the numbers suggest that there are fewer and fewer potential liberal voters. So you, yes, you could say that the, the average swing voter in this country tends to lean to lean more towards the conservatives this time around. Uh, but when we look at Justin Trudeau's personal numbers in the latest Abacus poll, only 27% of Canadians had a positive impression of the prime minister. Obviously, that number used to be much higher, and it has stagnated in the past few months. And so, with such numbers, you're down to the core base of the Liberals, and the core base is not enough to win in an election. Mm -hmm. Now, the Liberals have uh, focused much more on affordability ever since Parliament returned a month ago. Uh, has that effort been factored into these numbers, or is it still too early to tell? <laughs> It is too early to tell, but you can understand from those efforts that the Liberals see the same polls as we do. <laughs> because in every poll that they ask about what issues matter most to the Canadians, right now, cost of issue, inflation, the price of groceries, of course, housing has been a big issue. And so right now, the Liberals are trying to go on the offense on those issues that matter the most to Canadians. It could bear fruit. We'll see in the next months and years if it works. The Liberals have two years before the next election, if the NDP of course, keep uh, part of the deal. Uh, it, but it's too early to tell. We, I, I'll answer that question maybe next spring. <laughs> okay. Well, well, luckily, you, you send out publications much more frequently than that. So I'm sure you and I will speak before that, Philip. But really appreciate, as I said, astounding numbers to be breaking down with you today. Really appreciate the time. Thank you, Michael. Have a great day. You too. And that's uh, Paul's analyst, Philip Fournier. And that is our program for this Tuesday evening. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. I'm Michael Serapio. Primetime Politics will be back tomorrow. But up next, Estabéjean avec l'Essentiel.